They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah. All right, guys. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. We've got a very special guest tonight. Brett Hemphill is a Florida diver, cave diver. I'm not sure what the, the proper title is. How would you like to introduce yourself, Brett? Uh, just a cave diver, cave explorer documentation. Mm-hmm. And when we say cave... We're not talking about walking through caves. We're talking about subterranean waterways, caverns, passages, big, big openings filled with water. And if you've been watching my channel, you've probably seen a little bit about the springs. Uh, I talk about the spring water and I talk about above ground a lot. But there's not much out there as far as beneath in the aquifer, beneath the aquifer, the source of these springs. Very few people have actually gone down in there. Brett is one of these people. And Brett's actually gone down pretty dang deep, uh, deeper than most people would think you, you can go beneath Florida. Um, people think that it's so close to uh, sea level that there's not really much land to go land to go down in underneath there well we're gonna watch some videos here in a sec and you won't believe how expansive some of these these uh openings are but um brett if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself how did you get into cave diving did you grow up in florida and uh maybe start there well my my family's from florida and uh, my father worked at NASA right up until the Apollo 8 projects is where I was born on Cape Canaveral. After that, he moved on to different things. And uh, at an early age of 14, I was already, I loved exploring, no matter where it was, creeks, rivers, climbing trees. And uh, I was on a trip uh, caving in Indiana 
and couldn't sleep one night. And myself and two of the other people went in and crawled through this space that they had never been in before. And we found this lake room. And I guess it all kind of started there. Um, and when I began cave diving in 1990, it was literally within a year. My, my, my reason for really wanting to dive was to explore uh, springs and sinkholes and places. I just already at that time and shortly after my instructor desperately tried to convince me to move to Mexico because it was really believed that uh, the Yucatan was the Mecca for cave exploration. And because of the logistics involved in Florida caves, he, a lot of people really felt that there wasn't much left to explore here, but uh, I, I was pretty well rooted and I realized there were a lot of things in coastal areas and deeper things. And so it was really, it, it was an infatuation at first, but then it just really became something that just consumed me trying to find new frontiers and new places to explore. You're, you're muted, Narco. When did you start throwing on the tank and going deep in some of these passageways? Uh, probably diving in caves below three, below 200 feet, probably 93. I started mm. cave diving in 1990, and it all started off the coast of Palm Harbor. There was a uh, collapsed uh, cave system out there that we had dug on for many years. And uh, one day we just, you know, I just pushed a little bit further and it opened up. And of course, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but uh, really, uh, technology, we were talking prior to the show, and I'm just really fortunate, as well as other explorers, to be alive during this time when we have rebreather technology and helium, you know, breathing helium is really what allows us to go very deep mm. in battery technology. So, you know, having the technology that's allowing us to kind of transcend and go further than any previous explorers had done in the past. and mm -hmm. So many of these frontiers in Florida, uh, previous, previous explorers would get to a certain depth or even a certain distance and say, we can't go any further because, you know, using conventional scuba gear, it just wasn't available. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Around the early 1990s, how popular or prevalent was it to go deep down? You know, how big was this field or in industry, if you could even call it that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of uh, bravado. That's a musical term. Um, and that was early 90s was really the apex of how deep can we go on air versus back then there weren't a lot of real functional uh, trimix tables where you would introduce helium. And, and, you know, the problem with going deep on air is oxygen is your really limiting factor. As you go deeper and deeper on regular compressed air, your oxygen content gets higher and higher until the body, either based on time or exposure to oxygen, you, you'll literally seize up and pass out. And of course, when you pass mm -hmm. out underwater, you breathe water and then you die. And so in the early 90s was a real critical time in deep cave exploration where there was a group of individuals who were like, let's see how far we compress air versus another group of individuals who were saying, the technology's coming. Let's get on helium mixed gases and, 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 you know, let's do that. So 
And, 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 and as a young diver in the 90s, you know, I had people on both sides, you know, whispering in my ear, like, like, like the devil and the angel, you know, so I took, mm-hmm. I took, I took air a lot deeper than anybody should ever take air, had an extremely <laughs> close call, nearly ended wow. my life. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fortunately, a friend of mine named Steve Strasma, at that time, it was even difficult to, you know, get Trimix instruct. And he, he was like, look, if you're going to do this, we've, we've got to substitute air for helium or you're just going to die, you know. And so, uh, you know, it was a really pinnacle point in my, you know, in, in my progression was moving from that whole deep air mindset to, to substituting helium. Of course, at that time, rebreathers and, and, and a lot of the technology wasn't available. So that's kind of when it started, I'd say. Uh, there's a place called Eagle's Nest. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of uh, body recoveries. Even our group has assisted mm-hmm. quite a few times, including myself. And one of the deepest body recoveries in the United States uh, took place there in, you know, in the in the mid '90s. And it was it was a terrifically difficult body recovery. But uh, once again, it was it was at that time where people were either pushing the limits with that whole kind of bravado, how deep can I go on air versus really using the correct amount of helium to do it safely and stuff. So, Okay. Now, before we pull up some of this footage, can you just kind of give us a time frame as to what depth was, you know, where were people pushing the limits as far as depth in like the, the twenties with like the previous generation of scuba gear versus you know scuba tanks and the stuff you're using sure and the innovations you just talked about in for example tell us you know how deep were people diving in the 20s how deep were they diving in the 90s and what is it what is it like today well um Jacques Cousteau is infamous for really bringing scuba that technology you know and even in the uh even in the you know in the uh, late 30s scuba in any capacity in the early forties really was in, in still prenatal, <laughs> you know, you can't even say it was in its infancy. And when scuba came out, there were so many limitations. And then the Navy hadn't even really given us tables to, I mean, even tables used for recreational diving were created by bending, literally intentionally bending U S sailors when scuba diving first came out. So, you know, in the uh, in the early fifties, when you say group, when you say bending, do you yeah. mean subjecting them to the bends? Correct. Yeah, okay. I mean that's actually how many of the early tables were created was through repetitive experiments on early Navy divers. Throw throw <laughs> someone down there and find out, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, back in the uh, late forties, early fifties, scuba was still in its infancy, so people were very uh, reluctant to go much, and even the regulators themselves really couldn't go much deeper than about 80 feet. Those depths beyond 80 feet in, in open water environments were were far beyond us. Uh, cave diving, truly, its infancy began in dry caves in England and Wookie Hole, and then in the United States uh, with early pioneers of cave divers that started cave diving in the early 70s. Uh, one of them lives close here, Paul Heinrich. You know, so in its infancy, cave diving was just guys just going into these openings and entrances. People had done it before. They had died, you know, 
and, and even creating the protocols back then for how to conserve your gas, how to wear your equipment, you know, in the, uh, in the early 70s, late 60s, was, that also was in its infancy. So, you know, the birth of cave diving, as we know it now, really was still evolving well into the mid-70s, early 70s. And it's, at that time, it wasn't even, even considered a sport. I think in the, I'd say in the late 80s and the early 90s is when cave diving was just beginning to be considered, you know, in a kind of a sport. You know, people, there were several systems in Florida where people could go and enjoy the cavern in the first hundred feet, you know, but still I use the word frontiers. They knew that there were just boundless frontiers deeper, further in, further back, you know, you know, you know, currently the, even the world's record for the longest linear cave, that means one entrance, one exit is still, you know, 26,000 feet. So if you can imagine going in one opening, traveling 26,000 linear feet wow. back, and then having to turn around and come back that far out in, in battery technology for the development of diver propulsion, basically underwater scooters that pull us through. I mean, that has changed tr- tremendously in early divers at Wakulla Springs who were setting these records. They were building their own uh, DPVs, diver propulsion uh, vessels. They were building their own stuff. Uh, even here wow. with our group in our decompression habitats, those bags we get into or, we're, we're kind of even designing our own technology, uh, you know, scrubbers to scrub out carbon dioxide, ways to stay warmer. Uh, we come back from a lot of these dives that you might, you'll be showing shortly. And, you know, our, our question isn't, how can we go further? The question is, is how can we stay comfortable? Because the reality is, is once you lose the ability to stay warm, stay hydrated, stay comfortable, the, the thought of continuing to go further and further, it's not something you, you think about. It, it's, it's really comparable to mountain climbing, you know, some of the higher, higher peaks and stuff. You can't just take the mouthpiece off and just take a deep, a deep gulp of water. You can't do that. No, <laughs> no that would be bad. That would be bad. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of things that, that have killed many divers in the past isn't really anything other than, uh, you know, going unconscious underwater, even if your gear is not working. I mean, a lot of the fatalities you see these days are from divers with equipment that's delivering the wrong oxygen to air, to helium mixture. And, you know, once again, depending on the depth and the pressure you're at, oxygen is, 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 is a deadly gas. Well, um, the gases well. we use to explore can't even sustain life above 20 feet. We, we physically have to be at a certain depth before we can even start breathing them. That's called a, it's a hypoxic mixture versus a hyperoxic mixture. So a lot of your viewers, I mean, we could get lost in the minutia of the, some of the physics and the, not physics, the, the physical science that goes into it. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, for me still, it's the frontier. I come back, you know, and it's still going or it's still going deeper. And we sit and we go, how, how can we remain comfortable and continue to go further and further and further? So, and that's been, that's been part of my passion as well as, you know, my friends and the group that I dive with for, for many years. Wow. Great. So let's kick off some of the footage. I have three here ready to go. We have Beyond the Beach, Phantom Springs, Deep Passage, and Wikiwachi, Minas Theorith, Director's Cup. Which which would you like to start off with? Um, uh, 
Because the Wiki Wachi is the longest one, right? Yeah, we could do a little bit of one that's called Beyond the Beach, and then I could explain a little bit about the previous explorers that were at this particular cave system, and then, you know, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Phantom Springs actually isn't located in Florida. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a desert aquifer located in the extreme um, west end of Texas, believe it or not. So, wow. Well, that, it might still be worth watching sure, to, absolutely. See, to see how they're different. Absolutely. Um, different geology. How different is the geology? Don't don't go into it too much. But well, Phantom Cave is a is a thermal spring. Uh, the, oh, okay. The water temperature in there is a constant eighty two degrees. Oh wow. Uh, versus your Florida caves will fluctuate between sixty eight and seventy three. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as, as far as erosion and the sculpting of caves, uh, so many variables that go into that. But we could start out with the the uh, visit to uh beyond the the beach yeah that'd be great okay all right let's you got to pull up your screen and then yep here we go you guys see this okay yep yep all good all right so in the, as I was saying, um, in the early 90s, in mid-90s, I wasn't involved with the exploration that's occurring at, at Wikiwachi. Um, Wikiwachi is the longest roadside attraction in the United States. Uh, Florida, uh, one time, at one point, our, one of our major income factors here in Florida was we had Lion Country, Safari, Cypress Sunken Gardens, and there was just a literally a, a, a myriad of roadside attractions that uh, were happening in Florida. Um, well, I, I'll segue back in the early 90s, divers using open circuit, which basically means conventional scuba, uh, using it in um, configured for safe cave diving, had really pushed to the limits they could in a small spring located approximately one-eighth of a mile back from the main spring, the large spring where the mermaids perform on the side of US-19 in Wikiwachi, Florida. And uh, they'd gone as far as they could. They were in a massive tunnel called the River Alf, and it was a a gentleman named Jeff Peterson and Dave Miner, and they had a group of support divers, Larry Kerr, and several other guys. So I I just want to feel like I should mention that. And they had based on the opening being small and the exposure to oxygen for long periods of time, they had reached the, the, the distance and the depth that they could, you know, logistically uh, achieve. So here we are, you know, exiting the small section of the cave, coming into what is considered the big wiki-wachi stuff. This is, a, this is just a small left-hand corner of a room called Middle Earth. Uh, the balcony... <laughs> Uh, is at 200 feet, the ceiling is at approximately 180, and the floor is at 268 feet. And this is the right wall of this massive room that was named oh by... Uh, and this is Florida, Florida, right? This is correct. This is in Wikiwachi, Florida, just to the west of Brooksville and to the north of Hudson and south of uh, of Homosassa and Crystal River. Uh, we're approximately five miles from the coast, the Gulf Coast here in this case. Um, so this uh, this scooter, or we call them DPV, is actually a version of a scooter that's literally made in a garage by a, a gentleman 
you know, uh, named Rodney. And uh, this is an earlier scooter, scooter using, you know, lead acid batteries and stuff. Uh, this, this video was some of our earlier footage that we had taken in this, this cave system. Um, but this is literally just one room. And then at the bottom of this room, headed out to the north-northeast is the River Alf Tunnel. We won't see that, but, you know, you can only imagine how divers must have felt when they uh, discovered this room in the, in the mid nineties, you know, once, once again, faced with this incredible opportunity, but just daunted by, you know, logistically what they would need to bring and supply in order to, you know, explore this properly. Uh, we use uh, dry suits because even at 70, 72 to 73 degrees, which is where our water temperature is at Wikiwachi, um, the body will become hypothermic after a very short period of time. So we have to, we don't use conventional scuba diving suits. Uh, we use basically, it's a, it's a shell suit. In fact, it's more closely related to a space suit. Um, there's seals on the neck and the wrist, and you basically inject wow. air in order to uh, keep the atmosphere between the inside of the suit and your body at the same atmosphere uh, the water is. So you, you're constantly adjusting this suit and you can actually make a bulkhead. So if you need to um, go to the bathroom, number one, <laughs> you can. Um, these days we can actually run uh, electrically heated undergarments. And, uh, you know, uh, so this uh, this is a series of uh, rocks that have eroded out, out of the room called uh, the Misty Mountains <laughs> on the far side of the room. Uh, from corner to corner, the room is... Uh, over 400 feet from corner to corner, 200 feet wide. Uh, it's just an amazing room. I can remember the first time I saw it. I just, you know, you just, it's, it's like being in yeah. outer space. Yeah, it's breathtaking. It really, it really is. And uh, all of our support divers, even now, they have to go through a series of dives, uh, you know, because progression, cave diving and progression is the number one thing, obviously training that keeps people from, you know, anytime you find yourself beyond your um, experience, progressively never training, hopefully, is when things go wrong. And so this would be the third dive. If you were a cave-trained, Trimix-certified diver and wanted to be a part of Karst Underwater Research, this kind of represents the third dive that you would do. And then in front of Matt right here, that black abyss <laughs> is literally the River Alf Tunnel taken off. And so... That's kind of the end of that dive. Um, I, I think in the uh, in the in the beginnings and ends, you'll see there's a, a smaller passage that leads. And in, in 2014, uh, this system was connected to uh, Wikiwachi on a really cool dive. You see here where it says fossilized microbials. Um, I can explain mm -hmm. that. I'll try to make it entertaining for your viewers. But you know, we, we've had major ice ages here in our world, but uh, in class, we didn't learn about the hundreds of smaller ice ages that occurred. And so when we dive in sunken caves off the coast, we find uh, microbials. They're undulating bacterial formations. They, they, they're still uh, metabolizing oxygen and all types of stuff uh, in the salt water. Well, the ones that mm -hmm. are in Wiki were actually, uh, you know, came to, to, to being when these conduits were filled with salt water during one of these ice ages and, you know, ocean levels rise, the panhandle of Florida has gone up and out and of the Gulf and the Atlantic many, many times in the past. Um, uh, but these microbials that we see here in Wikiwachi, 
are almost like the rings of a tree. And what they are is just proof that this conduit, these conduits throughout Wiki have been filled with salt water and provided that nutrition uh, for microbials to form. And then when fresh water flushes back into these massive conduits, those microbials can't survive anymore. And so they're mineralized. Um, mm. and, and so what we see on the floor, and you'll probably see in some of the subsequent uh, videos, is just large piles of these uh, microbials that formed when the sea levels re- you know, uh, rose and fall. So it's amazing. I tell everybody, caves are time capsules. They're just amazing. You know, they, they aren't subjected to sun and wind and and weather and and uh, some of the things you find in caves they're just here on the corner and once again you can see um, some of these formations and stuff um, they're just perfect time capsules you know and you're and you're but you're moving through in a, in a linear sense you know um, a lot of times scientists will perform core samples which is basically straight down and you can see a lot from eating a core sample but just imagine the information that you can collect from a from a linear uh, you know, enlightenment of, uh, of these geologic layers. And so this is representative of the passages that are heading back up uh, to the chimney or, you know, that coffin size passage at Twin D's we have to get in and stuff. So we're heading back out now and they just get smaller and smaller. And logistically, that's one of the real struggles we have is we have to take all this equipment and, to get to the big section, we've got to get through this uh, 1,300 linear feet of small cave. It's a little bit bigger here. but uh, So this is directly under the chimney at Twindy's. This is a bag used for lifting up cars or planes or, or whatever, and we've inflated it and put it up on the ceiling. It, it's not the same anymore. We actually have bird, uh, built a bird cage around it, and we could put three people in it, but you know, this is where we spend the majority of our time. This is a, the early version of this bag. <laughs> so that was that. Wow. And Brett, I got a question. I've seen from all the horror stories that I've heard about people cave diving and all that. Uh, as long as you guys stay at the top of it and you don't disturb the sediment, it doesn't cloud up. Or is that different types of caves depending on where it's at? That's a, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, that's an, another reason why uh, there's so many fatalities in cave diving. Um, uh, you two guys could go and get adequate training for open water reef diving, and you could go virtually anywhere in the world. I mean, if you went to Australia, you know, watch out for the great white sharks and don't pick up the little octopus that have spots on them, right? You, you learn things like that inherently, but in cave diving, you could go to Jenny and be in a passage where there's practically no silt. You make one turn, and the next thing you are is you're in a part of the conduit that's filled with, you know, clay and silt. And in environments inside of a cave, or from cave to cave, different caves, they change so rapidly. And so a lot of cave divers will get a lot of experience in one or two caves and go, you know, I've got 100 cave dives. And then the next thing you know, they go to another cave down here or somewhere, and they're, once again, they're so far beyond that progressive experience of what they had in the other cave. So every time I dive, even after 30 years, I never allow my previous experiences to, 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 to lead me or, you know, kind of, you know, provide me that extra, well, I'm okay. You know, I've done this before. You know, you really got to, years ago, I wrote an article called Renewing Your Mind as a Cave Diver, you know, and you mm-hmm. take that logistical training and you, you reapply that, but 
you just can't allow yourself to ever think that one cave is like the next and one experience is somehow going to guide you through the next situation. So yeah, you can't get too, too cocky. And, and one more question for you, because, yeah. and I wanted to reiterate that this is Florida because everybody's like, Oh, there's nothing underneath Florida. It's too flat. It's okay. too, too shallow, whatever it is. How important yep. is it to be studying these cave systems and be going through these cave systems to map them out? What, how, what, a, what importance does that serve for the people? It's, it's, it's tremendously important. You know, I've seen so much of our watershed change even in 30 years. And I'm sure my great grandkids are going to go to some of these springs and say, look at the pretty green water. And I'll go, well, when I was a kid, it used to be as clear as Stolich vodka. You know, um, some of the practices even now um, that we're doing here in Florida, I tell a lot of people there's only 120 miles of land that keep us from being an island. And I believe me, if we lived on an island, we would be treating this landmass a lot differently, you know, than we are. Um, the, all, if you take into consideration all the caves and spaces that have been explored, that still represents barely 1% of the encapsulated systems that will never be found or explored. And throughout Florida, linear cave, like river, Geologists don't like it when you say underground river. Um, there isn't as many linear caves. To understand that in Florida, as water moves through our aquifer, it moves at different rates. At a lot of our bigger springs, you'll find water that's a day old, a week old, months old, and then some of that water's 200 or more years old. So as you know, our, our aquifer is a water table but water is constantly moving through this porous limestone. And then every now and then it'll get to a creek and then the creek will turn into a little river. Then the river will turn. And the next thing you know, it's coming out at a spring and stuff like that. But, but mainly what in, in the karstic parts of our aquifer, you'll have large voids. You hear these stories about well or well drillers in Orlando and all around Florida. They'll be drilling down and all of a sudden just go and hit a void. Those things do exist. That's not, that's not a fairy tale. It doesn't mean that there's a massive river moving underground there. It means there's a, a, a massive chamber that probably hasn't been disturbed in years. Um, there, and there are documented uh, situations here, especially on the coast, where they've drilled several core samples and disrupted the hydrostatic pressure. You know, even when you build a house, you know, the roof holds up, you know, protects you. And when you perforate the ground too many times in a lot of these areas where you have karst and caves, you disrupt the actual water pressure. And uh, there was a place just north of Brooksville where they did a bunch of drilling, came out the next day and massive sinkholes had formed and everything else, you know, mm -hmm. part of what we do here at karst, you know, it's important to understand that uh, surfaced karst formations don't exist all around Florida and where they do, it's as, it, it, just as important as a spring if you know there's a sinkhole that's really relevant to water moving expeditiously underwater, it's not always good practice just to fill it in with shit, you know, mm -hmm. and, and discard it. Because, you know, the reason a lot of our springs have incredibly high nitrates and are filled with lingvia is not because of what's happening where the water comes out. It's what's happening back in the localized aquifer where water's going in quickly. In certain parts of Florida, it takes the water, once again, it has to go through sand and mud and sedimentary layers. But there are parts of Florida where it'll rain and that water will be in our drinking layer instantaneously. 
you know, these are the areas that somehow our geologists have identified, but they're not going to any great extent to, to really protect, you know, once again, protecting springs is great, but if you can't protect the localized recharge, then the the quality of the water at your springs just isn't going to be reflective of that. So I could talk on that all night long. And and they're pulling, (laughs) they're pulling millions of gallons. I mean, all these big corporations are pulling millions and millions of gallons per day yeah. unregulated so it doesn't really matter to them they're going to milk it as long as they can i don't know if you've seen that documentary phosphate have you seen that documentary here oh. i'm familiar with it yeah I, yeah I, I have to be i have to be really careful the same organizations that allow me to uh, document these areas are the ones that do a lot of that research but i will say this there are many documented cases uh, i mean i'll give you a perfect example of zephyr hill bottled water at crystal spring um they were only mm-hmm. Believe it or not, a lot of people are like they're pulling more than they're supposed to. The reality is, is the geologists and scientists will go in and say, you can take this much. And most companies don't. But at Crystal Springs, the moment they even tried to go to half of what they could, they started pulling up water from a deeper source in an aquifer where there were sulfates and basically mm-hmm. putrid water. You know, our drinking water comes from a very thin lens. And scientists will do core samples to substantiate basically how water moves from a deeper part and it's filtrated and gets to a shallower part. So Zephyr Hills bottled water used to only come from Crystal Springs. But when they moved up to still regulated amounts, the water went bad. And so they had to pick uh, approximately five other springs in the state of Florida so they could meet, you know, those uh, th- those things and stuff. If you're going to take bottled water, the best place still is to take it to where it comes to the surface. In my opinion, I, I still don't see, you know, the need of it. I mean, you can still purify water and keep certain minerals in it so that, you know, electrolytes or whatever, you know, it's good for you. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. Can I ask, sure. can I can I ask you something, Brett? Yes. How often do you find yourself drinking Florida spring water from the All the source? time. From, from the from oh. a rock source? Well, I'm 80 years old. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Often, I'll be down in Wikiwachi, and I'll close the mouthpiece of my rebreather, take it out, and go, gunk, 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 and just drink. Oh, wow. I told you you could do that, you see? When, so can I ask you, when, you, when you're in the Ministereth, yes. can, you, can you drink that? Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. Without a doubt. I've had wow. many drinks. I've had many drinks of water. Uh, prior to getting to Minas Tirith is Mount Doom, and that's where we actually drop to 407 feet before we come back to 375. But, so oh, if, yeah. if we watch that other video, sure. um, how much are we going to be seeing a different room, a different location? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Did, so did you, you have a chance to uh, see the, the map I sent you? So we, if you have one, you want to show that later, you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring that up yeah, afterwards. Okay. Let's, let's queue up the... Um, that next one i think it's about 14 minutes or about yeah there. and feel free to cut it off when you want to but yeah i can we can okay. walk through it i mean it's amazing every second is, is oh worth, thank you it's is priceless thank it's you. great um let me cue that up right here when are we going to start talking about the aliens and stuff narco are we going to bring that up on the, the later <laughs> half or no no the no, mermaids no. and stuff no okay well well once we watch i'm gonna i do want to ask you about the strangest things you've ever so think about it it is still it is still my fantasy to find a 
unidentified spacecraft <laughs> half dissolved out of limestone in a massive passage. Believe me, I, I want yeah. for that. I really do. I really do. Well, <laughs> how about how about just this? Do you ever see formations that look um, man-made, designed, or when I was younger? I would be stunned and go, that's just an impossibility. But as I've gotten older, I uh, even recently on the History Channel, uh, a friend of mine, Michael Barnett, and some of the guys went down, they found these massive white obelisks of limestone that were clearly man-made. And they were very excited. And then they swam over to one wall and the anchor line was going up and down because of the waves. And the anchor line was cutting out perfect rectangular blocks of limestone and so they realized that all these blocks of limestone that were on the floor could have been part of the Bimini Road were actually mm. just made from fishermen dropping their anchors and having those nylon ropes cutting into the limestone. Mm. But, yeah, but I, I have seen stuff over the years that's just difficult to explain, but fortunately, um, and I've gone to many people and said, how did, how did this happen? What There's one system in North Florida that has these massive uh, they look like whale bones, but they're literally uh, dolomite formations covered in gothite. And they look like massive bones, but they're literally just leftovers from an ocean floor that the water has eroded away where the limestone was more soluble. The dolomite formations from the previous, you know, millennia, millennia, millennia ocean floor are now eroded out of rock. And I go, well, that makes sense. But I'm always very subjective. I don't always... Just because a person has initials after their name, I don't go, okay, yeah, well, yeah, that's got to be what it is. <laughs> yeah, because it's like looking at clouds. You want to believe, so it's like, wow, that really looks like a whale bone or elephant bone right. or whatever it is. So sure. you start to see it in your mind. Yep. All right, guys. This is WikiWatchy. You guys see my screen? Yep. Mm. All righty. Whoa. This dive begins approximately 7,600 feet from the uh, Twin D's opening and 6,000 feet from the Wikiwachi opening that we currently can't even dive due to uh, the tremendous flow that comes out of the bottom of the main spring at Wikiwachi. Mm. And uh, once again, what you're seeing here in this layering is just, I I'm not even going to try to make a word, but these are these are just different. Oh, imagine the ocean floor one year when you have a cataclysm. It's just layer. Once again, if you think of the layers of a tree, but think of the layering of our, you know, early Earth's early ocean floors, especially here in Florida. And so, what you're seeing here is a in the matrix of conduits that start the recharge far, far back uh, from Wikiwachi more towards the Pithlacoochee uh, Swamp, what we're in here is what would be considered the river part, you know, where the water has, has accumulated and you're seeing all these different layers. Uh, the brown is more representative of, of an iron-rich layering. And mm -hmm. so we're coming up into one of the first uh, super rooms in this new section. This is called the Sirius Room. Wow. Uh, a lot, And uh, so we're just coming up the Sirius Room here. And you can see the left wall. And uh, usually when we explore these... Oh, rooms, my God. Now, Andrew <laughs> is on top of the hill, and Matt and I are easily 150 feet away. And this pile of rock kind of represents the center of the room. 
And so we're just circling here. And once again, you can see all these layers. Uh, some of this rock on the wall is more pliable and soft. Where other Now, Brett, if, yes, I can, if I can cut in right there, sure. we kind of see like a black and white cookie uh, difference between the top layer on yep. the wall right there. Correct. And the white, whiter layer beneath it. Yep. Now, within those, there's probably hundreds of different layers, right? Correct. But what does that main difference indicate to us? The, the, the layer really indicates, I guess I, just to give you an example, in, in the Bahamas when we explore, we see a lot of red Sahara dust from when a long, long time ago there were tremendous winds pushing out of Africa, and we'll see a lot of encapsulated Sahara dust there. Wow. We see some of it. But generally what you're seeing is that that lower layer is softer, that browner layer is more, uh, as Dr. Pitkin would say, fractal or brittle. And uh, it just really is, and it is just comparable to what was happening in on our planet in the ocean floor in, in things that were happening in our atmosphere and deposits that were coming down to the ocean floor at that time. Uh, we see, you know, coronoids, lots of microscopic life, and stuff just that's literally just encapsulated. And a lot of this breakdown on the floor, believe it or not, if you rise above that more fractal layer, it gets soft again. And the thing is, is uh, this is a good example, is as water was eroding through this room, you know, as water, I mean, when we were all kids, have you guys ever pushed a garden hose down into the dirt, turn, mm -hmm. turn the hose on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> pushed a garden hose down into the ground? Well, this yeah. is kind of an example. So uh, we've passed the main lead to our right, and Andrew and Matt pushed into this lead. Now, once again, this rock here, when we were first exploring Wiki, this type of rock we called White Death. Yes, because as you can see, that stuff on the floor is just like talcum powder. I mean, it's like it's very, very soft. And uh, and not uh, you don't see a lot of tiny, you know, once again, well, you guys mentioned coquina or any type of stuff like that. Whatever was going on, in the layering of our, of our, uh, you know, sedimentary layers of the ocean floor or Gulf at that time, you can't, we can't, I can't say for certain. Um, but, uh, so we're moving into a room now called the funnel room. Matt's taking the lead. That looks That's like fun. Right yeah. And you, as you can see, there is flow kicking out of here. It's mainly coming up. You wouldn't imagine being in these massive passages and going through this kind of like, a, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Brian K. Cook in the Bahamas, uh, what, is, what does Brian call that? He calls it a drain. And so now we're coming up into a formation called the funnel room. It's a massive room. The walls are incredibly high. And so you ask yourself, well, man, how does this room fall? You know, how, how does this room form? Well, believe it or not, at the far side of the funnel room on the surface, there, there is, there's a sink. Uh, the sinkhole doesn't go, um, you can't swim in it and go down but there's definitely a higher content of tannic acids and carbonic acids that are, that are filtering. Once again, I, I told you guys, some parts of karst topography allow water in quicker. Mm -hmm. Well, in this area of our landmass, we're seeing a lot more acidity coming in from this sinkhole. And because of it, this fluctuation of water has now made this massive room. Um, we, you know, we get to the far side and there it is and it just goes boom, and it ends because, you know, as water was moving 
you know, once it finds another way, then some of the ways it carved out earlier, water are kind of abandoned, you know, I mean, and mm -hmm. so, uh, as massive as this room was, we literally just followed it right down to where it, it, it pinched off Andrew and Matt did. The, the path of least resistance. And also, and, can can I add, is is yeah. what type of, or can I ask, what type of, is there any wildlife at all in these yes. uh, systems? Yes. Yeah. So without a real proper synthesis, um, we at photo or chemo or whatever it is, we have small, small crustacea. We have isopods and amphipods. These are things that are literally, you know, uh, three sixteenths. Uh, and then, you know, you have albino crayfish. But generally, Whoa. you don't, and those aren't very large in this system. And they all live off each other. Sometimes if there's a bacterial content that comes in from like a, a surface a sink, um, they, they live there. But in the parts of our cave here at Wiki where there's no entrances and it's really far back, you just don't see much of it. You start seeing it when you get closer to the surface. But uh, without a real uh, synthesis of any kind, you know, as big as these spaces are, it'd be like in a science fiction novel. You'd expect to see some gigantic creature come flying out of the darkness. <laughs> but, you know, without a proper, um, uh, you know, food chain developing from some type of synthesis, you know, right. you just don't see it. Uh, and we have worked with... Uh, several biologists because in florida what they've done which would be fascinating to you guys is if we're doing dna testing on these uh, small crustacea and we can literally by dna testing we can find out how they've moved through the aquifer over the millennia so if i take a isopod from this cave and compare it to an isopod from north florida we can literally ascertain where it started and how long, it, in, in a sense, scientifically, how long it took to migrate through that porous aquifer. So mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist, but some of that uh, research is amazing. So now we're back in the serious room, and instead of going straight, we're ducking under here, and we're heading towards the current end of the line at Wikiwachi. Uh, Wikiwachi is, is a strong magnitude spring, one of the biggest in the state next to Wakulla and Manatee. And... Uh, but anyways, we got back here, uh, Matt, Matt and Andrew did. I was actually in Palau. We had found this new section. We had found this new section of cave. And they called me while I was in Palau doing work. And they were like, hey, we're your friends, but do we have to wait till you get back? And I was like, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't regret it. So now here we are at the bottom of, a, of an incredible room called the Unknown. Hmm. Uh, the gas you see coming out of our suit, you know, even when you go deeper and come up, uh, due to Boyle's law, when you go deeper and you come up even into shallower sections, that gas has to expand, even though we're on fully closed circuit rebreathers. So now we're literally at the bottom of this room and it comes up this room from where we enter it here to the far side, I would say is nearly over 400 feet across and just this massive breakdown. And as we reach the, the top of this incredible breakdown in this room, you can feel the Wikiwachi River water just coming up through the breakdown. And for two years, we've been trying to navigate around. You can just see it's just going up and up and up. For two years, we've been trying to find a way to get around this breakdown. Uh, the same surface depression that I described uh, from the funnel room is the one uh, that's even closer to this one. The two rooms are kind of offset. They're relatively close to each other. And uh, anyways... 
fortunately, we've found a way around this massive breakdown. This is called the saddle, which is kind of where the breakdown gets close. And then, as you can see, it opens back up. Uh, we found a way around it, but now we're literally almost 10,000 feet out, 368 feet deep, probing through very small wow. things. Um, but uh, this is one of my wow. favorite rooms in the system so, as well. So, Brett, if I could ask you, sure. who came up with these names? Who comes <laughs> up with most of these names? I'm seeing, I'm seeing a bit of mythology, yeah. Egyptian mythology, uh, Tolkien. Yeah. So where do these names come from? Originally, uh, the explorers at Twindies uh, started the Tolkien, the Tolkien uh, names. And, and our, uh, our, our followers and a lot of our friends liked that. These two rooms were named by Andrew and Matt. Generally, uh, the first explorer to document the room is the one who names it. Um, nice. uh, Dr. Pitkin uh, will still use Tolkien names, but he's gotten a little tired of that. <laughs> <laughs> so the serious yeah. room and the unknown are names that he named. And yeah, we also he, he, he's named rooms Revelation Space. Uh, oh, he comes up with good names. Uh, the Prehistoric Room. Uh, land of the dead who aren't dead the not dead what was, yet room. <laughs> what was the inspiration for serious room is that I the think, only egyptian the only egyptian uh i'd have to ask andrew sometime i think constellation it was more based on the constellation i think uh, okay. Than, okay than the than, than the egyptian part but uh so here we are circling this room and that's, if you see down there, that lead dropping down, uh, that's where we've gone back down. Now we're circling back under this massive breakdown. And uh, under the breakdown, it's it's kind of, uh, there's calcite welded. And, you know, we're trying to find a way. We have other projects, but this is really, I mean, as explorers and even our team members, you know, when you find a frontier like this, you, you can't just walk outside and go, you know, there's probably a new Mount Everest over there or, you know, or, you know, or a mountain. But the, wow. and, you know, the most amazing thing, a geologist told me many years ago, they said, we don't believe that there's openings big enough in the aquifer to move from that three, the top of the 300 foot range through the 400 foot range. You know, once again, it was a, it was a, it was a, scientific kind of accepting based on core samples that there weren't even openings big enough in our aquifer between that 300 foot range <laughs> and that 400 foot range for us to do what we've done. And when we did it, it wasn't like I went back to the scientists and went, ah, in your face. I mean, I was so excited, you know, but that's the thing about our aquifer is uh, they say, um, you know, um, hydrogeologic formulas are more complex than rocket science you can do core sampling all over a given area. But the thing is, is, you know, uh, the underwater morphology of our state is, it's just to a certain extent, it's not, cal it's not calculable. And, you know, it's an average. And I think what concerns me most, I have to be very careful once again, is, you know, we talk about taking water from the aquifer. My biggest concern right now is, is the water that's being added back to our aquifer. It's becoming a it has been for decades now. They uh, they'll treat our sewage almost to the uh, point drinking standards, and they'll pump millions and millions and millions of gallons of treated sewage into our deep aquifer. 
because scientists believe that there are sedimentary layers that will filter and separate sure. our deeper aquifer from our shallow aquifer. Once again, what we what we're seeing in these videos is the layer we drink from, and is it as expansive and big as it seems? It's a very small layer, generally below 80 feet and above 400 in that range. Anything you start going below those depths, you start running into sulfide rich waters and you know uh, you know iron bacteria and things like that. So would would that be yep. sorry? No, go ahead. Would that be similar to like the black hole of Andros, that um, that bottom layer where it's too much acidity or bacteria or whatever it is to the, be the, uh, safe to go into? Yeah, the, the oxygen deficient environments that happen in a lot of our big ocean sinks and, and sinks uh, are basically a cause and effect of a sulfide bacteria due to lack of oxygen. There's there's not really water movement, but in Florida. Our deep aquifer is a saltwater aquifer. It's heated, believe it or not. It's it's very it's hot water. There are uh, places in Florida where, once again, it comes up, and it, and it does make its way to the surface. And the thing I think that concerns me most about Florida Whoa. is there. This is the the white room. I call it Gondor. Yeah, it's, that's that an amazing. amazing. That was the the end of our. This room represents the end of the Wikiwachi um, exploration. That is like a Grand Canyon underwater. It's, it's yeah. And Brett, what, do you do you guys have to special order your suits for your guys' massive balls in order to get in there? Like, <laughs> what do you guys have to do? <laughs> I always tell everybody, I said, if they used to be big, I don't know, but now they're just little titanium <laughs> BBs now. But, uh, but uh, as I was saying, you know, there's precedence in Florida that shows that deep water injection. They've tried. There's a reason we don't do desalinization in Florida. It's because that hyper saline water, when they've tried to inject it into the deeper aquifer, it mm -hmm. has found ways. People's wells get salty. They can't put it in the Gulf because it would kill our Gulf. It, it's not affordable to ship it over to the other coast. And so there's precedence after precedence that show that in some cases, there are ways deep aquifer water makes it, into the shallow aquifer quicker, just like there are ways on the surface where surface water makes it into our aquifer quicker. And my mm -hmm. biggest concern is now in Miami, Orlando's ad adapted this for a very long time. They're just injecting millions and millions of gallons of water into our deeper aquifer. And I, I, my, it's my fear that eventually all of our beautiful springs in Florida are gonna be green, um, you know, in the future. You know, I mean, people just move here more and more. And like I said, you know, I think it's a practice that has to be done. But, uh, you know, once again, if precedent shows that in many cases uh, there are ways that are aquifer, you know, it's not it's not a consistent thing, but it's a it's an amazing place. And I, I've just been so fortunate to be a part of it and stuff. So. That's our last 4K video of Wiki. Uh, I think uh, this next season in 24 we're going to be doing uh, four, 4K, 360-degree footage so you guys can see the largest pass the largest passages in Wikiwachi we can't film. They're too big. As, as big as that might seem, believe it or not, there are places down a tunnel we call the Mega Tunnel that you could fly a, 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 you could fly a jumbo jet down, but we don't have Whoa, Okay, okay, let's, let's <laughs> slow down. Can, can I show something really quick that I found on the sure. Facebook group? Because... 
you show you're showing these we're showing these videos of these massive huge mm-hmm. rooms well what you're not showing is the tight spaces that you have to get through in order to get to these rooms like something like this which sure. i i for a while was obsessed with going to the lesser known springs here in florida and, and going down towards the hole where the water comes out and kind of like looking around and stuff but i would never be able to you would never find me here that's a, you know that's what i'm saying and you you guys, you guys have a whole bunch of pictures make sure to check sure. out his his facebook group karst underwater research make sure to follow them and to give them a follow now but you guys Absolutely. you guys have a whole bunch of pictures and just so people can get the scale of how big these systems are and literally you could be sitting at your house and some dude could be <laughs> Swimming underneath. Brett could be swimming underneath your house right now sure. because these systems just go everywhere. It's really fascinating. Yeah. That that road in that picture is three lanes north and south with a 30-foot median and two 30-foot medians to the left and to the right. And there the passage that, that moves to your left and down and some of those passages are bigger, still bigger than that entire <laughs> A thoroughfare. Um, so we, this is the the six lane highway that you were correct. referring yeah. to. And yeah. how long would this six this six lane highway run at, at its longest uh, kind of uh, straight straight away? Those sections we've got about two. We get about three thousand feet of cave that is bigger than that six lane highway. Um, mm, uh, wow. But it's just. It, it's just nearly impossible to film. Even when we were in the top of the serious room, Andrew was situated in the middle and was filming Matt and I from 150 feet away. Um, there are sections of the mega passage where it's over 200 feet across and nearly hundred feet high. Wow. And so, uh, That's yeah. wild. But, but further back to the, like I said, uh, something else I was telling a friend of mine is, uh, I think one thing we've also learned in Florida is early in the, uh, the development of Florida, they believed all of our water migrated from the uh, uh, Okeechobee in Georgia, right? Or is it Okefenokee? Sorry, Okefenokee. And, and and what we're learning more and more in Florida is we have localized recharge areas. There's a water table, which is really representative of our aquifer, is the water table. And throughout that water table in Florida, there are fractures and fissures and rooms where water moves slowly and moves fast depending on what's happening here on the surface. But, you know, what we're learning and is most important here in Florida is now is there for a lot of our beautiful springs, there's localized recharge areas. The The main recharge area of Wiki occurs if this map is orientated up as north, down as south, and uh, right is east and left is west. Uh, the main recharge of Wiki goes out to the south, southeast. And, uh, and you can see you know, um, that the water quality at Wiki, I think, uh, predominantly is good because the Pithlacoochee Swamp is where a lot of the water goes into the ground and stuff. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that place will always have a special place in my heart, Wiki, and we'll see we'll see what happens there. And and this is, I mean, this is a big area, I'm sure, right? Miles, probably. Oh, yes. But the, just, I mean, imagine the entire state, these other systems that probably haven't been discovered. Because when, when I was looking up videos of divers and stuff it would be like this random little pond in the middle of nowhere and as soon as they would dive in it'd be an entire different world underneath that one little pond that you would never expect it to be like under there you know well the deepest underwater caverns in the world are actually back in the early 80s are only located three miles to the east of wikiwachi believe it or not wow okay 
they were they were called dipolers, huh? They're currently closed. Uh, the property is owned by the Boy Scouts of America, and they're massive, massive rooms that store water. Now, when we go into them and go around the bottom, we can't feel water moving, but we know that they, uh, you know, they contribute um, heavily to the water at Wikiwachi and stuff like that. And uh, I wish I wish we had more time to talk. I was talking to our mutual friend. Uh, Spencer about some of the, the even the places that aren't bigger, but up in North Florida, we were talking about Swanee Spring, Sulphur Springs, and all the different springs that people used to visit for health purposes and all kinds of stuff. But uh, um, uh, what about what about Wakula? Because when I look online, Wakula is some claim is the the largest, deepest, highest magnitude spring <laughs> in the world. Oh, is it? Is... Yeah, it's definitely up there. Um, right up until about uh, seven years ago. Um, uh, sorry, I'm at my daughter's house. Her cat was interested in the computer. Um, Wakala was the biggest. So the largest underwater cave in the world is a, is, is a cave system in Mexico. But there are many, many openings throughout that cave. So in, uh, in cave diving, once again, where you come in and where you get out, they're the same and there's no other openings. Uh, for a very long time, Wakulla, the connection between Turner and Wakulla was, was long. It was like 47,000 feet until they connected it. The, uh, they were out in a section called Q Tunnel. Um, and then uh, the world's record for longest linear underwater passage occurred near uh, um, Suwannee Park in North Florida by Falmouth. Uh, and it was a few thousand feet longer. Uh, but once again, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of these systems in North Florida will go dark for years at a time. And then once it because of rain and groundwater usage, another huge factor in North Florida now is, is agricultural use. And it's not even agriculture that stays here in Florida. A lot of our big Florida family farms uh, are leasing their property to conglomerate farming and those conglomerate farming companies are benefiting from unlimited water usage. And so a lot of our uh, springs in North Florida are just not what they used to be. You talk about bottled water, you can imagine those huge round sprinklers. I mean, just millions and millions of gallons of water a day. And, you know, these families deserve to lease that land to farmers. But I, I have strong uh, feelings, you know, once again, to a certain extent is, why should the water rights of our historical farmers be available to conglomerate farming where much of that, you know, industry isn't even staying here in Florida. And so, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, but mainly what Karst does is we, we document these things, you know, we can, we can map and document and say, here's what it looks like now. Here's what it looked like back then. Obviously something's going on. So hopefully some of the research we do can assist scientists with that methodology. Mm. great awesome that's wonderful Brent. all night long <laughs> yeah, make sure to follow so, him on facebook so brett i had one um a question mm-hmm. the state the state of florida is the state of florida on your guys's side are you um working with the government how much you know does it shift depending on the um on the uh whose cabinet is in charge and um no they definitely they definitely work with us we're a we're a group that it's it's a physical science once again you know i think the only way 
individuals like you and Juan, I mean, it's, it's, it's excellent to share this with you. That's been my number one goal. You know, when you come out from a dive and you go to your friends and go, oh, you should have seen it. It's this and that. And everyone goes, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> you don't – These we live in a time, your generations, plural, that if you can't see something, the the, the, the desire to protect it isn't, isn't inherent. You know, no one really wanted to – no one really wanted to protect baby fur seals until they saw a video of a baby fur seal getting clubbed over the head. I mean, that sounds awful, but I think the best way to protect a resource these days is to document it and bring it to people who can't even, you know, they're like, no, there's no way. There's no way that's underneath my feet. That's what I'm walking on every day. And, uh, you know, thanks to guys like you, we can bring these types of images to the world and say, listen, um, this is a resource that's changing and it's changing because of the way we are allowing, you know, our, our agriculture and our fertilizing and our water usage uh, to, 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 to continue. And uh, I just don't believe that you're ever really going to make a huge change till people can relate to what you're seeing and doing and stuff. Um, that's a younger version of me. <laughs> Got the beard going on there, bro. Nice. Yeah. But uh, let's see. So this is this is uh, one of the narrow entrances. This is right? Twin D's, and this is a uh, this is Michael Barnett. Uh, he's a published writer for Florida Shipwrecks and also a cave diver. Now you can wow. see Michael doesn't have any gear on his back. He's got a weight belt on and he's pushing his tanks in front of him. But all that gear you're seeing in these videos, the rebreathers and the bottles and the scooter, have to go down this. We used to call it the coffin passage because when Psych. you're sitting in there, it's about the size of a coffin. Yeah. And everything has to go down this limestone chimney before we can put it back on and then make that traverse that those thousands and thousands of feet to get to where you saw in that video. And it's nothing that I could do or any one of our explorers could do without a team of highly qualified guys. There's a Derek Ferguson there. And it's their job to move all of our equipment down this little hole <laughs> and into that, uh, you know, around that orange bag and stuff. Uh, as I said, the, the flow at Wikiwachi, I doubt we'll ever dive at the Wikiwachi Head Springs in my lifetime again. It's, uh, the opening at 170, 160 feet is about the size of a breakfast table. And currently there's 200 cubic feet of water a second. Whoa. Coming out of that opening at, at the Wikiwachi proper, the main street. So it's pressurized, right? At that yes, point, absolutely right. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and believe oh it or gosh. not, this all this all started on one of the worst droughts that Florida's ever experienced back in the early 2000s. That opening that now has 200 cubic feet of water a second at Wikiwachi, not here in this video, um, was all the way down to 98 cubic feet of water a second. Uh, Tampa was literally on a timer, uh, much like a Vegas has been where they literally had a timer as to when it would be reaching critical levels of uh, water, you know, uh, and, and getting water. So anyways, it lets out into a room at 40 feet and we put it all back together and, uh, and make our way. But uh, it's not all about big cave. Oh, there's the real. Oh, dude, look at, no, there's no way. (laughs) At any given time though, we have two separate breathing sources, redundancy, (laughs) 
Wow. And, and I just want to know oh the, the original Florida man that was like, you know what? That's a nice hole. I want to go in that hole and I want to see what's on the other side. Because got to give credit to Paul Heinrich for that. He's still around. We got to get him on the show because that guy's balls must be huge. Because, I mean, who would yeah, think yeah. of anything like this? I mean, look at that. That's, there he is coming out. There it is. That's he's, I think he's got my bottle with all that. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Well, that. That orange habitat now is situated much better. We have a carbon dioxide scrubber in it. Most of our dives and dive time is spent in that orange bag off-gassing and allowing our bodies to naturally uh, remove the saturated uh, helium and, and uh, nitrogen. And then you got to wow. go back up. But, you know, I, I, I uh, constantly tell our team it's not about being deep or far back in the cave. Water in general is not a media that gives a, gives a crap. Mm-hmm. You don't got to be 300 feet deep and 10,000 feet back. I told him, I said, do not take that chimney for granted. I said, because, you know, it's like we were discussing earlier in the program. Mm-hmm. Water don't care. Water's like a honey badger. If something goes wrong, you're going to die, you know, so you've got to, you know, approach it the right way. But uh, Do we yeah. have time for questions at all, Brett? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, there's 800 and something people in the chat right now. 843 Fantastic. people. We could take some questions. If you want yeah. to ask questions for Brett, put them in all caps, and we'll try and get to as many as we I'll can. I'll let you guys read them because uh, I have to. I have two separate sets of glasses, so you just let me know. Yeah. So, if all right, you want, guys. And thanks for this opportunity, guys. I appreciate it. Oh, thank well, you. It's yeah. Thank you, Someone Brett. Let's see, guys. Some... Yeah, somebody said something about treasure hunting, Brett, earlier, by your yeah. treasure hunting adventures. Can you talk about that? I I've, I will tell you, we located areas with a potential uh, using a technology. I've signed so many non-competes and non-disclosures. And, and not that I have wealth to be sued for, but I, I it's not something that, I, unfortunately, I'm allowed to talk about right now. Um, okay. I, I will say... Uh, there, there are multiple sites in Florida currently where they know there are wrecks of antiquity that um, have nothing to do with the company I was working for. But unfortunately, because of less legislation that was even brought into existence in the Clinton administration, uh, Spain, it, there's so much litigation. So uh, even Spain today, like even Spain today, the nation even of Spain the, still has their correct. Their one of the richest Illuminati confirmed. One of the richest galleons is located off Honduras in 800 feet of water. Yeah. And Spain was going to come over and start, uh, you know, uh, salvaging it with ROVs. And Honduras said, if you do, your ships are going to go to the bottom, you know. So, wow. But yeah, I mean, right now I'm familiar with at least two ships of antiquity that we know of in Florida that people are not excavating. Mm-hmm. Because they're not telling Spain where they are. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'll tell you, in my documentary, The Saxer Stones, I interviewed two divers that were on the AquaQuest looking for Atlantis in the Bahamas and mm-hmm. the, the Caribbean with the Edgar Casey uh, Foundation. And they also found a French, I believe, a French uh, ship, shipwrecked. And it had copper ore. It sunk with, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of copper ore. Well, when they went down there, Brett, it was all gold ore. And it had been registered or filed as copper ore 
for similar reasons so that to keep France, you know, uh, not getting involved oh, yeah. in, in some litigation here in Florida. Oh, or it's in, tremendous. That was actually North Carolina or South yeah. Carolina, that, that one. But, yeah, there's there's one off the coast in Florida right now where they've excavated it down to French cannons several times. And the, the Spanish basically say, well, they're French cannons, but they were on a Spanish galleon. You know, so, you know, once well, again, uh-huh. entering into litigation immediately is what the Spanish government wants to do. I mean, the thing is, is if you take the price of gold as it sits in a pawn shop compared to gold antiquity, it's eight times more expensive, you know, antiquity versus just regular gold. So you can imagine, you know, but uh, mm. that's all as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so now this question right here. How does one get started in this sort of diving? This was a question I was going to ask you, so I'm glad sure. someone asked it. Um, there's more mainstream. I don't like using the word sport, cave diving. I mean, the, the training is out there. My only suggestion as a person that's done it for 30 years is get the best training you can, number one. If you ever feel like you don't want to ever continue to progress, I mean, even at Jenny or some of the more what people call benign caves. They're not. I mean, you could be on a beautiful big piece of line in Jenny Springs and make a turn. And I've used this dialogue in, in, in documentaries before make a left or right turn and you're in hell. So, you know, um, if your aspirations are just to experience cavern and cave diving, my suggestion is, you know, get your scuba, get your advanced scuba. A cavern course is an excellent course for, for for wreck diving. Um, anybody that takes a cavern course um, will learn more in that cavern course how to run a reel, how to maintain positive buoyancy, how to manage your gas. Um, and, and and then, you know, once again, just be progressive. The, the training is available, is, is alluring as some of our videos and some of the maps and things you might see. It's it, it just progression is the most important thing. Um, there are some people that have an inherent talent in a mindset, you know, there, there isn't a physical prowess that allows you to be a, a cave diver. What really it is, is, you know, some firefighters can enter into a burning building where other people are like, screw that, you know, the burnings, you know, if there's a cat in there, screw it. You know, it's, it's your basic ability as a cave diver to not do what your body, you know, wants you to do, you know, when you want to freak out, when you want to go, oh, shit. At that time, you literally just have to dial it down and compress. And in in that type of reactionary, you know, mindset sometimes takes a very long time. I've been in the water with, you know, cave divers that have a pedigree and will lose visibility or something will happen to the line and they just go. And I'm kind of like, oh, my gosh, you know, so progression, do it for the right reasons and be progressive. You know, you may end up you know, but uh, it's an amazing sport. It really is. It really is. Uh, some of the caves in Cancun and around the world are just amazing, but just get good instruction the best you can and uh, be progressive. Okay. Have you found evidence of ancient human life in th- those caves? And I'll, yes. I'll put in any caves, artifacts, yes. etc. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in Yucatan in the early nineties, before it became popular, we were finding pre-Columbian stuff down there. Here in Florida, um, 
we've uh, located several times indigenous uh, in, uh, people, uh, remains. Um, most of them are just drowning victims. You know, I've never, you know, we used to believe there was sacrifice and all that. But, you know, a scientist once told me that if a rock fell every 200 years, it would account for the rock pile in the middle of the room. Well, a lot of times these in the ancient individuals we find in caves around the world, you can apply that same theory. If one person drowned in that hole every 200 years, it would, it, it, it would, it would accommodate what we found. Uh, there, there used to be some indigenous, uh, indigenous remains in Manatee Springs. Um, you know, a lot of those times you find those things during, uh, sinkholes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, most of what we find, I think it's Pleistocene, you know, um, upright, uh, um, sloth, saber-toothed cat, uh, mainly dugong, basically your, your ancient manatee. We'll see a lot of, um, okay. usually not below 160 feet, but right up to about a 160 feet in vertical cave, you can see uh, ancient dugong or ancient manatee um, ribs, uh, predominantly ribs and hip sockets uh, a lot of the manatee skull structure was just too thin to support solution into limestone so i mean we've we've seen entire rib cages of, of dugong and stuff and uh in the walls in the wall of caves yeah, in the wow. wall which once again you're 160 feet and if you see a dugong rib cage <sighs> in the wall you just have to say that was the ocean floor at one time at one time you know where a lot of people are like no 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 wow that's wild okay so here's a one. Do you ever see microplastics or I'll, I'll um, em- embellish this a little. Do you ever yeah. see p- pollution down there? Like just downright pollution, like a bag of Doritos or <laughs> microplastics. Stuff yeah. Like that. Um, once again, it, 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 you'll see it more when you have more openings in a linear conduit. I've seen a lot of micropollution at uh, manatee obviously because you got multiple sinkholes but once you make it past ancient or you know sinkholes that will usually dissipate unless you're in a system that siphons and sucks with tidal fluctuation when we were uh following up with mapping in sulfur springs which is located in downtown tampa i was through 3800 feet and a mcdonald's straw just went (laughs) and a few minutes later I know this is disgusting, but a, 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 a feminine product went floating by. But we, we <laughs> oh, have man. multiple sinkholes, historical sinkholes. Uh, that entire part of Tampa was designed around... Um, Wait, did you say tamp- Tampon Bay? <laughs> <laughs> but that Tampa itself, uh, the, you know, all that part of Tampa, Sulphur Springs, the early part, it was designed around redirecting stormwater into sinkholes. That's how they designed it. And the problem is now is so much of the housing in the same areas now that they'll run the water through a, a surface kind of filtration pond and stuff like that. But that that localized aquifer in the Sulphur Springs area, they just kind of gave up on it. Uh, okay. I don't know if you guys ever heard of the Federal Water Protection Act, which is more or less moot now. But, you know, Florida as a whole back in the day saw that federal law coming into being and Florida enacted a quick law called historical drainage ditch act. Uh, because if not, uh, when the when the federal water protection act came into being without that historical drainage ditch act, there would have been a lot of repar- uh, you know, uh, you know, reparations that would have had to have been made, but, uh, Florida got around it. So 
even in Orlando, Apopka, especially up in that area, you still, you still see tremendous amounts of stormwater, brake dust, oil that's directed to natural sinkholes. Mm-hmm. Still, you know, still happens. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Were were the caves in Mexico very similar? Now, I I would like to add to this. Sure. You you said, you mentioned Cancun. Uh, Is most of the the subterranean waterways in the Yucatan area? Uh, All the way back to Guatemala. You just see a a really higher concentration. The, uh, The limestone's tremendously porous. And close to the surface, and you have so many surface entrances, which, once again, the moment you have a surface entrance into a a localized aquifer, you're increasing the amount of acidity that, in addition to the actual, you know, hydrology making, you know, water moving and making conduit, when you add the acidity from, from hundreds of surface features, then you get a matrix. And so in, in Cancun, Merida, Throughout those areas, what you end up with, a lot of people will talk about the meteorite subsequently assisting with that. But you have this mm. massive plateau of, of, of close limestone with openings everywhere. Salt water also really contributes to the degradation of limestone. And so it's an okay. amazing cave there. And so during several of our ice ages, a lot of that cave was very dry. I can't mm. really say exactly, you know, what the, you know what humans indigenous people were living there we've proven over and over again that you know uh you know um, uh gosh you know there was lots of worship the underworld that was going on there shabalba and but but a lot of what's shabal shabalba Shabalba is is basically a a group of entity a a group of deities that the mayans worshipped uh that they believe they had the keys to the underworld and that they they existed in these cenotes and caves. And so, you know, there was a really a heavy belief that people were sacrificed into these things. And I believe to a certain extent they were. Uh, in the early 90s, we found pre-Columbian Spani- Spanish skulls. I mean, if you see a Mayan skull, it's very small. A lot of them have had modeling. Okay. But... So when you say pre-Columbian Spanish skull, yeah, what does that mean? Well... Because Columbus well, was the first European... Yeah. Um, are you saying like European looking there, skulls? There are still skulls that have been found in some of the cenotes in Mexico that are of Spanish orientation. The jaws, the teeth, everything, everything. And they know it. And they're still studying it. I mean, uh, Na- National Geographic and a lot of the people down there will lead you to believe it's only happened in the last three years. So. Uh, you know, wow. um, uh, yeah, the lizard uh, people, Smithsonian, and all that stuff. Okay, right? so let's just let's reiterate because that's a big fo- that's a big focus on on my channel is pre-Columbian contact. In, oh yeah, in Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. So you're saying there's people that don't match up with like native skeletal features, skeletal oh, features yeah. that are in caverns that would not have had Europeans going into them. Definitely not. You know, but, could, but they are there. They've done it. And so, some scientists will say, I've heard them say pre-Columbian. Other scientists will say post-Columbian. But they're definitely not skulls from, from Maya. You know, okay. and, uh, and the ones that we located that uh, were definitely not drowning victims. 
Okay. You know, so, now, um, can I ask you, sure. I, ha I have multiple articles in my files of giant bones of giant humans over seven feet tall getting pulled out of the springs in Florida, Cedar Springs. Um, I have a couple articles. I can show you them if you'd like. Yeah, but I'd, love to, I'd love to see it. I'm not now in, in South America, they have a lot of those elongated skulls. Mm -hmm. Sure. It, are you, do you see any stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've, we've seen modeled skulls and stuff like that, especially in the, uh, in the cenotes as you move closer to Guatemala. We, we've seen more of the modeled skulls and stuff like that. Um, now, I've had this question up for a little. Um, do any of these caves make it out to the ocean? Yes, absolutely. Now, could you enter any of these caves from the ocean? And make in, it Mex in, in Mexico, yes, there are one okay. or two. In Florida, I will tell you what ends up happening. Um, salt water is extremely corrosive. In Florida, currently, there is no uh, Anki A-line or ocean connection to freshwater. We, we know water's coming out, and we've dye-traced it, and we know that that is happening. But unfortunately, because uh, the salt water is so corrosive, at a lot of these uh, junctions uh, between the fresh water and the salt water, uh, you'll reach a terminal breakdown. And so currently in Florida, there is no true ocean to, uh, to uh, uh, inland, um, inland cave. The longest ocean cave currently in Florida is in Palm Harbor, Florida, believe it or not. It's Crystal Beach Spring. Wow. Um, and uh, we tried, we tried, still are trying. We, it's not an active project, project, but we really believe that it was going to connect to Blue Springs in Palm Harbor, uh, which is a private site, but uh, we're never able to do that. The most likely cave that there'll finally be an ocean to uh, a spring, you know, freshwater connection will be at Big Spring Creek uh, in Crawfordville. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Um, but uh, that part of the Wakulla aquifer, it goes very dark and it and is very rare for the water visibility to reach levels so you can navigate. Giant bones found in Florida, seven foot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love to, you guys get a scent. I, I had to take a look. I'm trying to, where do you guys know where Cedar Springs is located? Is that up there north of Apopka in so the Bronze area? I was wrong. Sorry, this is Silver Springs. Mm. Silver Springs. Oh, still, yeah. This is Silver Springs near Ocala. Wow. In a, and they say that this was a submerged burial chamber. And this was, I believe, mm. in, in Orlando newspaper. Yeah. I'm not familiar with it. I am familiar. Originally, Silver Springs was called Mammoth Cave yeah. uh, because of the high level of mammoth remains and stuff. Mm. It's owned by the DEP. Eric Hutchinson did uh, a lot of the mapping and stuff, and there I'm not familiar with this. We I was told uh, in some of the stuff we were working on in South America that you know, as you know, and once again, I'm not trying to debunk. I'm just adding another giantism is something that occurs. You know, it's very rare, but you can only imagine what indigenous people would have thought of a child or even you know an individual born with giantism. They probably really would have been, you know, either shunned or just magnified as this incredible individual. Um, you know, it, it's possible there could have been a, a, a group or, you know. A, well, you know, a the, of, yeah, the, go ahead. The Tamukua natives of Florida 
when the Spanish and French arrived were between seven and eight feet tall. Yeah. I, I, I and the, the Seminoles who are still alive walking today yeah. have in the 1960s when they were still barefoot living outside 24 seven average height of a Seminole man, six foot four, and they live to a hundred years. Wow. I know. Yes, that I do know. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we have some traces of these giants and the, the Carib people yeah. in Southern um, South Florida in the Caribbean, the Carib yeah. named for Caribbean. They were also said to be seven feet tall, a foot and a, sorry, a head and a half taller than the Europeans. Oh yeah. As I, you know, looking at genealogy and stuff like that, I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a racist thing to say that, you know, color race orientation you know it's natural for hu the human species to really migrate towards towards uh, likeness and stuff i mean it wouldn't surprise me if there were people who inherently were tall but you know you know wouldn't want to be with a tiny little person so you could end up with a pretty mm -hmm. you know large group of individuals who you know genetically were tall you know mm -hmm. giants compared to some other of the uh, natives you know native people here in florida so I'll tell you I don't what, discount anything. Yeah, there's no eight foot tall people going into those caves, squeezing in through those <laughs> small openings. No, no. I so, will say this. You know, one of the coolest sites I've ever dove is a warm mineral spring in Florida. It's one of the furthest southern sinkholes, and, and it's a it's a it's a thermal spring. And uh, there's still research going on there. It's and there are a lot of uh, there's always been a lot of uh, problems and stuff, but burial chambers located all around the shallower mm. circumference of warm mineral spring and wow. uh and lots of skulls and a lot of good information i don't know if they ever found any really large homo sapien remains but a lot of they definitely know that as that water table dropped in that in that uh sinkhole there in uh, south of sarasota that there was burial chambers all around the circumference and stuff but uh, wow it's it's one of our few uh warm uh you know, mm -hmm. uh, thermal springs here in Florida. Yeah. Even Sulphur Springs has uh, some thermal vents that water comes out at like 86 degrees. It's amazing. So. Mm -hmm. Now, Brett, uh, we don't want to jinx you here. Uh -oh. God, God bless you. You've had a, a safe career. Um, have you ever had a scary blackout situation or gotten lost? Yeah, Um uh, there's a there's a book that just came out that I was able to compose probably one of my closest calls. It was during that period of time where divers were moving from deep air to uh, to using mixed gases. And uh, I had successfully managed to, you know, deal with narcosis and swimming down to depths of almost 300 feet, which never, ever, ever should do. And I just got one of my first deep water uh diver propulsion um, um, scooters. And on this particular dive, I was convinced I was invulnerable to narcosis, the rapture of the deep, basically the accumulation of nitrogen that causes this narcotic effect. But what I didn't calculate was when you're swimming down to depth and the nitrogen levels are going up in your blood, it's happening slower. And I got on this scooter and shot down so quick that the nitrogen levels in my blood shot up. And I literally, it would be the equivalent of slamming a 12 pack in less than 10 seconds. And so I uh, was on the scooter and all of a sudden I felt the lights going out and I dropped the scooter and I immediately started looking for the guideline. And as I was swimming for the guideline, 
uh, everything just went black. I didn't go unconscious, but uh, due to the nitrogen overload that was occurring in my bloodstream, I lost my vision. Wow. And I'd like to say that I, I kept my composure. You know, I think I was, uh, I want to say I was 25 years old, not much younger than you guys. And uh, I, I just still to this day don't know how I made it out. I remember kind of surrendering my panic to a state of calmness and uh, a small light opened up when I got to the surface. Most of the capillaries in my eyes had ruptured and a filling had literally popped out of the back of my my Holy mouth because shit. I ascended so quickly. But fortunately, I continued to exhale. And uh, like I, and then shortly after that, I just had to make a decision. Either I'm going to keep doing this and embrace the technology and the logistics of using, you know, the right gas, the right equipment that I needed to do, or, you know, just get out of it. And uh, it was bad. I mean, I had to sleep with the bathroom light on for a few nights. Wow. <laughs> Tell us the truth, Brett. The, the water nymphs saved you, right? They dragged you out of there. and it's, they. It's possible. Yes, it's very nice. possible. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> Any, um, oh, no, you were saying? No, but, you know, um, I there's... The name of the book is Close Calls, and uh, it has basically a whole collection of stories of divers. But, you know, once again, that's a part of progression. There's been a lot of times where I'll, I'll go someplace and something goes wrong. But fortunately, my training and the progressive, I get out. And then you always have to reflect back, and you could say, I'm not doing this ever again. I nearly died. Or you say to yourself, what did I do wrong? And I'm not going to do that again. And how am I going to modify my mindset and my behavior to continue to pro progress? And so, you know, knock on wood, I, I enter even now with all the experience and things that I've, you know, uh, managed to compile. I, I, I never, I never start a dive saying to myself, eh, just going to do this again. You know, you gotta, you gotta renew your mindset and, and you know, do it that way. If you, if you don't, you're going to be in big trouble. Can you pull that question back up? narco because the yeah, the yeah. the watchers want to know uh what sort of exercises in order to grow uh their balls to the size of yours is there anything in particular is there any foods that you eat any drinks that you consume so we know because i'm trying to do the same thing too no. <laughs> oh my god no it's 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 just it's it's once again it's just a desire i've discussed this you know when when you come back from these types of experiences even in a controlled situation you feel, I mean, not to be spiritual, you feel reborn. Have you guys ever done something and you're like, whoo, then all of a sudden the sun's a little bit brighter and the grass is a little bit greener. And, it, you know, it, I mean, if, it, if jumping out of a plane gives you an adrenaline rush, then cave diving is like wringing out a washcloth, you know, because I tell you, by the time we're done, sometimes you sit in that habitat and you're just like, well, if I may yeah. add, secret societies would do their rituals and rites inside of caves for that same thing because it simulates the womb, the Mother Earth, and all this stuff. So yeah. it's again, it's a reborn yeah. again ritual, and you're literally diving back in through the birth canal of Mother Earth, and you're it's very primordial. Right? Yeah, exactly. You're hanging out in there and taking videos. Right. I mean, it's got it's gonna do something to you psychologically, a hundred percent. But we we made a t a joke T-shirt one time that said cave diving is primordial and it had two cartoon sperms with cave lights and in <laughs> line. So exactly. But, um, no, but you know, um, like I said earlier, um, when, when you, when you're back 10,000 feet, 
and you're 300 feet deep, you're not thinking about your family. You're not thinking about the bills. You're not thinking about the fact that you got to do an oil change in your car. But believe it or not, you're not really also thinking about certain aspects of your equipment because you've gone over them. The thing is, is you have to separate yourself from certain things and focus on the environment. Uh, but, if, you know, and, 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 and in order to get to that point, you have to be so familiar with your mantra and your equipment and how you're going to react and what you're going to do. Because, you know, as the environment's changing and you're going further and you're going deeper, it's progression. It really is, you know, and like I said, it's not uh, it's not a physical thing. I mean, there's certainly you want to be in okay shape to do some of what we do but a lot of most of it takes place here in 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 the mind and you know being able to kind of calm that inner thing that's going wow you're you're awful far away from the entrance Mm -hmm. you got kids (laughs) you know etc etc yikes Mm -hmm. so deep wells and broward yeah so i'll expand this question a little i'm under i i have the understanding that most of these subterranean caverns are north of Lake Okeechobee. Would that are they common south of Lake Okeechobee, or are there any at all, or are there just not as many entrances on the surface? Um, I'd really have to ask some of my friends that do. I mean, there is a huge part of the water management districts that do core sampling, and it's all public information. Um, you know, absolutely. I do know when they were doing a lot of canals and stuff, I heard rumors that there was a small freshwater lens and aquifer in some of those areas around Okeechobee and Broward County and stuff. But you certainly have an amazing uh, surficial layer of limestone there. I mean, it's like it's like Swiss cheese. Uh, and the reality is, is uh, the, the, the surficial layer of limestone where you guys live is much like Cancun. But what's what's different is the, is the is the next layer and you you don't have a uh, you don't have a real clear lens you don't have an aquifer like we have up here and like is in Cancun but the the limestone there is certainly present for something like that to form over the next millennia you know you just don't know but not to my knowledge that's the that's the that's my question but uh, you could certainly reference uh, core sampling and anything like that from your water management district i mean i'm certain that there's voids in large cavities in that matrix of limestone in that area. So. All right. The thing that that concerns me most about that is like I said, most, most of this deep well injection that's migrating through a series of canals from Orlando and making its way out there really changing a lot of things. What I think, think is great sugarcane industry, but I think the next thing they need to do to get a hold of this toxic green algae and all these things that are happening is, really diminish the nitrates that are being introduced and making their way all the way from St. John's and Orlando and Apopka and out through those series of man-made canals and stuff down to the Okeechobee and that wetlands down there. I mean, uh, mm. but they're, they're working on it. We'll see what happens. Are there any, okay. Go ahead. well, no, I, I think that's all good. I think we'll let you mm. go, Brett. All right. Um, that was tremendous. That's okay. the high. That's actually the highest um, turnout we've ever had on the live chat. Excellent. Um, over 800 people. That's pretty amazing. So thank you, Brett. Thanks for everything. Thank you for the videos. Yeah. And 
I wish you a lot of luck on your future dives. Oh, and I'll ha I have one more question for sure. you. Sure. What is the, it's a two-parter. What's the common age of retirement with cave diving? <laughs> and when do you plan on? Is it something that people give up because they want to? Is it, is it like football? where there's a, just a common age where everyone gets out at the same time? Are there people in their 70s down there? Oh, yeah. I mean, some of our cave diving pioneers are still diving. Bill Main, who really established a lot of uh, the logistics uh, for kit, especially equipment configuration. Bill still cave dives, and Bill's in his 70s. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul Heinrich, who has been cave diving since the 72, 74. I think his training number is eight <laughs> um they're still diving you know i i uh up until a few years ago i was having so many issues with you know issues with deep diving and stuff but i'll tell you some of my most successful dives now due to recompression schedules and equipment and being able to stay warm so i guess the question is is when my when my mind and my body just aren't doing what i'm I'm thinking they should be. Here's the saddest thing. I was talking to some of my uh, uh, friends the other day who are, we're all the same age, believe it or not, except Matt Vinzant. He's, he's a little younger than us. Mm -hmm. Some of the biggest opportunities of our life are literally coming down the pipe right now. I mean, things I can't really talk about. Once again, they don't have to do with treasure or anything like that. You know, we're asking ourselves, I mean, a good example. I mean, how do we explore below 400 feet? And I'm 55 years old. And it's like, we all say the same thing to each other. We need to cut back on the cookies, get out there and jog and realistically know when it's time to throw in the towel. And, and to answer your question, I'll probably still cave dive. I don't know if I'll be doing, you know, 400 footers at 10,000 feet when I'm 70 or 60, but I'm hoping to still at least enjoy cave diving. But the sad thing is, is I, I really enjoy it on that, on that edge. You know, I love the logistics. I don't know if I'd ever be happy just visiting the local spring and doing a little mm -hmm. swim dive. So I think when it's time for me to exit, I'll probably just exit completely. There's your answer. <laughs> okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, yeah, and, and of course, Brett. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to close with? Anything you'd like to promote, plug, recommend, ask of people? Just... Like I said before, with all the maps and videos and things that people see out there, there is a good, safe way and a good, progressive way to do this type of diving. These things aren't going anywhere. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our recoveries that we've had to do in the last uh, couple of decades are people who are highly qualified divers. And they really, you know, and I know some guys who are highly qualified commercial divers, but the, the thing is, is it's, 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 it's not apples and oranges. It's apples and avocados. It's a difference between a vegetable and a fruit. You know, if you want to do this type of diving at any level, just take the time, get the right training and be progressive, you know, and uh, it's not going anywhere. Don't go fast. Take yeah. your time. This was awesome, Brett. And I, I just want to say that I'm never going to do this ever in my life because <laughs> <laughs> I get, I'm too scared to do that, but it's really cool that you do it. And thank you for the videos and everything. And, and best of luck to you on your future dives, and we'll thank stay you. in touch, hopefully. So thank you again. All right, guys. Take care. Have a great New Year. Now, Brett, we're going to sign off here. You okay. stay You stay in the room with us. We'll okay. do a little post-interview.
But guys, okay. everyone give your blessings to Brett. Wish him many more safe dives. And uh, let's keep pushing the envelope. Maybe there take it go. 400, 500 feet, 600. <laughs> but um, thanks, Brett. Have Thank a good you. night. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.